This morning, we're starting a new sermon series through the book of First Samuel. You do read the newsletter then. If you have a Bible, please join me there, First Samuel. It comes right after the book of Ruth. At least it does in our English Bibles. But for centuries, this wasn't the case. In the Hebrew Bible, which was the original version of what we now call our Old Testament, the book of Ruth uh, was reserved for a poetry section near the back called the Writings. And the book of Samuel, that's First and Second Samuel combined, was immediately preceded by the book of Judges. Now, what's so special about that? Like, was anything of what I just said remotely important? Or was it just filler that preachers say, well, everybody else is scrambling to find the passage? It's important. Now, let me show you why. If you found 1 Samuel, turn back with me, past the book of Ruth, to the very last page of Judges. And look with me at that closing sentence, verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the historical setting for 1 Samuel. That's the taste in our mouths as we turn the page and begin this new chapter. If you've ever read Judges, that is, if you've been able to stomach it, uh, you might recall that these were days of total mo- uh, moral anarchy. 350 years of it. And here's a lesson for our increasingly relativistic culture. Um, when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, it's not a good thing. Um, how can I describe judges? Some of you are into watching uh, shows of the Nordic noir genre on Netflix. These sort of dark, morally complex crime narratives uh, that you kind of watch with your hand over your mouth most of the time. That's judges in the biblical version. It's a picture of what life is like with no king and no restraint. But actually, the situation was more ambiguous. It's true that Israel had no king. But fundamentally, that was because they refused to acknowledge God as their king. The Lord himself was to be Israel's king. And so the real problem was not the lack of a king, but a lack of obedience to God as king. The story told in Samuel is the proposed solution to this problem. Unfortunately, we don't know who wrote it. Um, More than likely, it was a lot of authors, and it was compiled much later. But here's what we do know. That by the end of the book, 
Israel has a king, and it's David. And David loves God. Uh, He's called a man after God's own heart. And he's so good for Israel in so many ways. But even David has a dark side. And ultimately, his rule proves to be a mixed blessing that keeps Israel waiting and longing for God's true king, who is Jesus. This morning, our passage from 1 Samuel 1 and 2, it allows us to enter into this story through a suffering woman named Hannah. And as we look together at God's own dealings with her, I want us to be sure and see three things. First, I want us to see what she suffered. Then I want us to see how she responded to her suffering. And then third, we're going to see what her suffering points us to. What she suffered, how she responded to it, and what this suffering of hers ultimately points us to. So first, what she suffered. Um, Maybe you all were still finding your place when Kara read earlier, but if you were listening, I wonder if you found the beginning of the story to be a little bit abrupt. It starts out describing this man, Elkanah. He um, comes from a champion bloodline of four generations. He lives in the lush, fertile hills of Ephraim. But all of that, it comes to a screeching halt in verse 2, when it says, Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah did not. We read that verse and are immediately in a world of longings and frustrations and tears. There are two causes to Hannah's suffering. And the first, I believe, is one we might tend to overlook. It's polygamy. Um, Elkanah, we learn, has two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Hannah, presumably being his first love, and Peninnah, um, always second. Now, as I said, if you grew up hearing these stories, these Old Testament stories from the Bible, there's a good chance that you've adapted and learned to uh, ignore this kind of thing. But if you didn't grow up hearing these stories, then you might very well find this stuff impossible to ignore. Because it can seem like Christians are being really inconsistent. Like we're picking and choosing what parts of the Bible we like to read out loud and follow and what parts that we don't. And the truth is we've reached this critical moment in our culture, um, in our day, where we just can't ignore this stuff anymore and assume that everyone knows this isn't cool. Sexuality and marriage is the hot-button issue. It's like the test case for everything you believe these days, it seems. So we can't turn a blind eye to polygamy in the Bible. We have to account for it. And what we can say is this. God made marriage to be between one man and one woman. And this has always been a controversial statement. In 2018, uh, the controversy is swirling around uh, the words man 
and woman. In 1000 BC, which is when Samuel is taking place, the controversy was over the word one. In the ancient world, polygamy wasn't so much about pleasure, could be, but it wasn't so much about pleasure as it was about wealth. Rich men could afford lots of wives, and it was a status symbol for them, how many wives you have. But even though the Bible describes this stuff happening, it never approves of it. Because whenever we see polygamy in the Bible, it's a total disaster. Family dysfunction uh, goes to threat level red, goes through the roof. Like when Sarah gives Hagar, her maidservant, to her husband Abraham, they end up fighting like hillbillies. Um, when Jacob gets involved in this weird love triangle with Rachel and Leah, uh, the drama there that we see is ten times more than anything you'll see on NBC soap opera. It goes through the roof. These narrative clues, so we have to learn how to read narrative. We have to learn how to listen to it and understand it. These narrative clues are God's way of saying no. Sometimes God doesn't push pause on the game film and uh, tell us explicitly what went right and what went wrong and how we can fix it. Most of the time, he allows the story to speak for itself. And what we find is that polygamy, it grieves the heart of God. Why? Well, because it grieves the hearts of his children. In this case, Hannah. Um, she's having to compete for her husband's love. Now, that doesn't sound very good, does it? The one that you're committed to, you have to compete for their love? That's a burden that nobody should ever have to bear. Okay, but of course, there's a deeper and perhaps more obvious cause to Hannah's suffering, and that's barrenness. Hannah is not able to have children. And this is a terrible thing. And the fact that it's so common, it doesn't make it any easier. It gives zero consolation. This is a profound suffering. But in Hannah's case, I think that this was a peculiar sort of pain. And For one thing, it fell short of this cultural ideal. There's a world-renowned Hebrew scholar named uh, Robert Alter. He's um, Jewish. He used to work at, he used to teach at Berkeley. He's now retired. And he said that in the Israelite culture, a woman's one great avenue to fulfillment in life was through the bearing of sons. Now, we don't like hearing that. I don't like reading that. But in that day, childbearing was a woman's civic duty because sons could work in the fields and bolster the economy. They could join the army and protect the land. And they could take care of you in your old age and give you security. Now, personally, I find interest in none of those things. So I wouldn't quite have measured up. So there was this enormous pressure to have kids. 
Way more than today. In our culture, if you can't have children, there's at least this option that you have of pursuing a career. It's not the case in Israelite culture. It was either I'm valuable because I have lots of kids or I'm worthless because I don't. And Hannah couldn't. She didn't fit the cultural ideal. She didn't measure up. And in case she forgot, there's Elkanah's second wife, Peninnah, this overly fertile, mouthy, thorn in the flesh, who taunts Hannah incessantly and reduces her to tears. Now, all of that seems to me totally unbearable. To go through that day after day, year after year, or even to comfort a wife who is going through that. It seems totally unbearable. But still, that's not the worst of it. There's more. At the heart, at the root of Hannah's despair is this chilling reality that her barrenness is in some sense caused by God. Our passage says it not once, but twice, back to back. Verse 5 the Lord had given her no children. Verse 6, the Lord had kept her from having children. Now, this is a peculiar suffering. I don't believe that we can say things like that about all suffering. I tend to be more comfortable saying God allows the suffering. But God is God. And in this particular case, we're told... He was causing this. And that should stir something in us. See, Hannah finds herself in this fellowship of barrenness with certain women who came before her. Sarah, Abraham's wife. Rebecca, Isaac's wife. And Rachel, Jacob's wife. It was through these women that God had promised to send a king a savior. And God had met each one of these women in their suffering. He'd given them children. He'd given them sons. And now he's about to meet Hannah, whose name, by the way, means favored. That's pretty ironic, isn't it? Because you see, Hannah is Israel, a poor nobody from the middle of nowhere Favored, yet barren, not producing fruit. Surrounded by enemies and utterly hopeless. But God is with Hannah. He's with her. And even in the darkest of moments, for Israel as a nation, for Hannah as a woman, for us as the very children of God, God makes himself available with an astounding hospitality. So there's Hannah, barren, mocked, exhausted, humiliated. That's her suffering. That's what she's going through. Now, what does she do with it? When all of that evil musters its full force and rears its ugly head at her, how does she respond? The story very quickly picks up in verse 9. Once, we're told, after a sacrificial meal at Shiloh, Hannah got up 
and went to pray. Our English Bibles don't catch the nuance here. In Hebrew, the phrase got up is an idiom. It's like when we say, I put my foot down. We don't really mean we put our foot down. We mean we said no. It's an idiom, and it means to take decisive action. So we read that phrase, and we wonder, how? What kind of decisive action is Hannah going to take? Because we know what we want her to do. We want her to grab Panana by the hair and punch her lights out. That's not what she does. She prays. Hannah got up and went to pray. And this itself is very instructive for us. Because whenever we suffer, we're confronted with a choice. We've got two options. The first option is to resist the suffering. That's what we want Hannah to do. Not because it's right, but because we want a juicy story. And... Because that's what our culture tells us to do. When suffering comes your way, climb every mountain, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, never let them see you sweat, blah, blah, blah. Because the thing is, there's really no wisdom in that because all those phrases are doing are just codifying what we're already naturally inclined to do. I don't need someone to tell me to resist suffering. Imagine that you're driving your car in heavy rain. Can you imagine that? <laughs> and, and you begin to hydroplane. What's your natural reaction? Resist. Slam on the brakes. Turn against the hydroplane. Get back on track. Has anyone done that? Yeah. It's because that's why you're all still here. That's the most dangerous thing that you can do in that situation. And yet it seems so natural. It's natural, so it must be right to resist. It seems like the best way, the only way, to keep yourself from flying into a tailspin, a deadly tailspin. The book of Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to somebody, and its way leads to death. And there's another option, isn't there? driving, you hydroplane, you don't have to resist, right? No, you can gently turn into the hydroplane and let it guide you in a new direction. It's so counterintuitive, but it's the only way to come out in one piece. I mean, that it seems to me is the whole quest of suffering. It's about survival. It's about getting through it without losing the very best parts of yourself. When it comes to rejection, suffering rejection, you don't make the team, you don't get the job, your romantic feelings aren't reciprocated. If you always are resisting the suffering, you're going to grow up to be an angry, bitter person. Because you've never let the suffering shape you. You've always dodged it or denied it or skirted past it somehow. You've never actually pulled with the hydroplane and let God direct you into something else. 
And so you end up, there ends up being this dichotomy of you have fragile people and you have broken people. And what's the difference? Well, the fragile people, they're about to break at any moment. But the broken people, they've already been broken and shattered and they're already being put together for another use. So which do you want to be? The only way to be seasoned as a human being is to walk with God through suffering. Not to resist it. Hannah turns into the hydroplane. She feels the pull of the suffering, the taunts, the barrenness, all this junk, and she lets it guide her to God. Think of all the ways she could have resisted. When she got up from that dinner table, she could have gotten even with Penina, like we said. We would have loved to see that. Is that in the Apocrypha, maybe? <laughs> she could have blamed Elkanah for what was happening, left the marriage, looked for a new life. You know what else she could have done? It was a feast. She could have popped open another bottle of wine. Couldn't she? Drown the pain. Numb the pain. What are you tempted to do when you get up? When you decide to take decisive action? Do you slander? You go after the one in charge? Do you get even? Do you wallow in self-pity? Do you go home and drink? Hannah doesn't do any of that. Even though Eli expects her to, right? She prays. She chooses to remain attentive to God, even though she has no clue what he's doing, where he is, why he's allowing this to happen. Now, when she goes to the sanctuary, the tabernacle, uh, to pray, Eli the priest is there. He sees Hannah praying. Her lips are moving. No sound is coming out. Eli loves liturgy a lot. He has no idea what to do with charismatic people. So he assumes that she's drunk. Verse 14, must you come here drunk? Throw away your wine. These words would be torn to pieces by any teacher of pastoral care or counseling. Um, Eli blows it utterly, as every pastor has done. Whenever that happens to me, Aubrey goes, and that's what a curacy's for. <laughs> Hannah, you know, Hannah relates to God on a deeper level than Eli can bear. In, in this story, it, it's the priest who's stuffy, and it's Hannah who actually has a personal relationship with God. And I'm not one of these people who thinks that religion and relationship are counterproductive toward each other. I'm an Anglican, so I, I like these things. Um, but... Suffice to say, it's entirely possible to devote your life to pious mumbo-jumbo and yet completely miss the God of love who's behind it all. That's what we see in Eli. Um, Hannah boldly asks God for a son. Through sobs, she prays, O Lord, I'm not sure what verse this is, O Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, I'll give him back to you. And what Hannah is inadvertently showing Eli 
and us for that matter, is what prayer is all about. Did you notice how she describes prayer in verse 15? She says, I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. That's her response to Eli. Don't you know what I'm doing? I'm praying. I'm pouring out my heart to the Lord. This is true prayer. There's a brand of spirituality that says true prayer is only about quiet and contemplation. Um, Sometimes the implication is that the more spiritual you are, the more calm and composed you'll be when you face trouble. Um, Now, I'm an introvert. I'm a huge proponent of all things quiet and um, a priest. So I love contemplative prayer. But let me tell you that if that happens to be your view of what the essence of prayer is, it's just not right. It's just not. Um, Hannah's prayer, which is a prayer, as we'll see that God answers, arises from, listen to these words from the text, verse 10, deep anguish, crying bitterly, verse 11, sorrow, verse 15, discouragement, verse 16, great anguish and sorrow. Here's the point. There's nothing you can bring to God. There's nothing you can say to God that he can't handle. I mean, my goodness, have you read the Psalms? Like if God did not want him to talk, if, if God did not want us to talk to him like that, do you think he would give us a whole book of Psalms and say, here's ammo for you? I'm not saying don't be reverent. I'm just saying God can handle it. You don't have to wait to go to God. When you hit rock bottom, it could be cancer, it could be adultery, it could be parenting a teenager who's totally gone off the deep end. Whatever it is, you can come to God just as you are. Your prayers are not rough drafts that you send to God and then he sends back with edits. Your prayers are a cry of faith. And God listens to that. No matter what they sound like. Prayer isn't a technique. It's not about being nice to God. It's about being honest with God. You know, the main image Jesus gives us of prayer is a, is a child asking her father for help. And three-year-olds don't tend to ask for help quietly or contemplatively. Uh, they insist, they shout, they persist. Now, there are children who are quiet. If a child cries and no one ever comes, eventually they stop crying. And uh, there are orphanages where children have been neglected to the point where this eerie silence hangs over the dormitories. What I'm saying is that the cry of a child is a cry of faith. It reflects their belief that there is someone out there who hears them and responds to them. And I'm saying that our prayers are much the same way. They arise from the belief that God is a father who is able, he's powerful enough, and willing, he's loving enough, to answer us. Isn't it beautiful how Hannah's prayer is so small, her words can't even be heard, and yet God picks up on every word. He hears every one of them, and not only that, but he looks at her heart. He sees her faith. We're going to 
find that coming up again in 1 Samuel. God looks into the heart. He sees faith and he grants her her request. He opens her womb and gives her the son, Samuel, which means I asked the Lord for him. Three years later, Samuel's weaned. Hannah keeps her promise to God and brings him to live with Eli at the tabernacle. Here's what she says to Eli, verses 27 and 28 of chapter 1. She says, remember me? I asked the Lord to give me this boy, and he's granted my request. Now I'm giving him to the Lord, and he will belong to the Lord his whole life. Just one more thing on this. Um, Hannah's prayer can sound like bargaining, can't it? If you give me this child, I'll give him back to you. But if her prayer was bargaining, um, we would expect it to be in this order. Prayer, pregnancy, peace. She prays, and she just like you would interview for a job, you'd come back home, you don't know if you got it or not, you'd be on pins and needles, and only when you get the job do you have peace. Prayer, pregnancy, peace. That's what a bargain would be. But if this is a prayer of true faith, and it is, what do we see Hannah doing? Prayer, peace, pregnancy. Prayer, faith, pregnancy. Answer. This is true prayer. So we've seen what Hannah suffered. We've seen how she responded to it. Let's see what her suffering points us to. And for this, we'll be looking at her song in chapter 2. It's this odd song to sing right after you've had a baby, right? Like you think when you have a baby, you're going to say, look everybody, God gave me a baby. Instead, she sings about politics. Who does that? That's how we know something else is going on, something fishy, right? Look at verse 10. She sings, uh, he gives power to his king, increases the strength of his anointed one. What king is Hannah talking about? I thought there was no king. There isn't. Not yet. So what's going on here? Hannah is speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. She foresees a future king. And what king is that? It's David. The greatest of Israel's kings. The one her own son Samuel will anoint. But she's not looking only to David. How do we know this? It's because a thousand years later, in the rural parts of Israel, another woman became unexpectedly pregnant. And she sang words similar to Hannah's. She's saying, my soul will magnify the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. It was the Virgin Mary, the mother of Jesus, the king, the true son of David. You see, he's the ultimate embodiment and climax of the salvation Hannah experienced in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Because he too was rejected and ridiculed. And even though he was the very king that the world was waiting for, he took a cross instead of a throne. He pulled into the hydroplane. He didn't resist it. 
but went obediently to the cross. And it's because of his death and resurrection that our wounds, our failure, our disgrace, our rejection, and even death itself doesn't have to crush us or have the final word. Just like Hannah's womb, these things also can be transformed from dead ends into doorways of life. So how are you suffering? What cross has God given you to bear? No one is immune to suffering. What does Wesley say to Buttercup and Princess Bride? Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says otherwise is selling something. Life is tragic. There's a rumble of panic beneath everything. It's the terror of fallen creation. No one is immune to suffering. And no Christian is outside of the calling of Jesus to pick up their cross. So what's yours? You don't have to go through it alone. And you don't have to wait until all of your ducks are in a row to pray. You're not alone. You are fully known and deeply loved by God himself, the Lord of heaven's armies. The one who has all the power in the universe yet saves the deepest reserves of his affections for you. So come to him. Come broken and weary. Come battered and bruised. Because in Jesus, our king, even our wounds, our deepest wounds, can bear the perfumed trace of God's presence. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.